What cigarette do you smoke, doctor? How often does your job call you out of bed in the middle of the night? Well, if you were a doctor, it would be often. And generally, there isn't much time to spare. Coffee, doctor? Oh, fine. Have a camel with your coffee. Thanks. You know, this night work's kind of rough, isn't it? That's right. But a camel's always a pleasure. Yes, folks, the pleasing mildness of a camel is just as enjoyable to a doctor as it is to you or me. In a nationwide survey, doctors in all branches of medicine were asked, what cigarette do you smoke, doctor? The brand named most was camels. Tens of thousands of doctors, general practitioners, surgeons, specialists, doctors in every branch of medicine were included. And according to this nationwide survey, more doctors smoke camels than any other cigarette. Try camels yourself, the cigarette so many doctors enjoy. More doctors smoke camels than any other cigarette. More doctors smoke camels than any other cigarette. Hello and welcome. I'm Dr. Rick Kirshner, and this is the true history of medicine. I researched and developed the story I'm about to share with you because, in my view, this is an important story that deserves to be told, and it should prove to be of great interest to a wide range of people. If you appreciate the natural world or value learning about history and why things are the way they are, if you care about health, humanity, and the future, this is for you. And if you're someone who just doesn't like being manipulated without your knowledge or consent, you will find this talk eye-opening. Whatever the case for your interest, I intend this story to be factual. Yet it is a fact that recordings of history can be unreliable. So while I believe that this is a reliably accurate story, I will apologize in advance for any errors or omissions or misrepresentations that may occur. And I want to give you fair warning that I have some fairly harsh things to say about the institutions of modern medicine. When I say those things, please know this. I hold no animus towards conventional medical professionals personally, nor do I mean any disrespect to the MDs in your community or mine. To my knowledge, the majority of MDs are decent and caring people. Many of them are courageously challenging the corruption in their system from within, and I respect any medical professional that is truly dedicated to serving the diseased, the debilitated, and the dying. The critique you'll hear in the story I offer you is not about them. As an author and speaker, I've been introducing myself to audiences for 30 plus years. I tell people that I'm a naturopathic physician. And early on in my career, I learned that my degree was a mystery to many, so I would explain it. Following three years of conventional pre-medical education, I trained in a four-year naturopathic medical school. In my medical school, I learned that there are real alternatives to giving people petroleum derivatives and cutting off troublesome body parts. Unlike my counterparts in the conventional system, I learned about nutrition and plant medicines throughout my medical education. And more importantly, I learned a different approach to healthcare with an emphasis on health and care. Naturopathic doctors are the world's trained experts in natural medicine. Yet if you're like most, you know very little about my profession, which may well be the best kept secret in medicine because of the history that you're about to hear. The story answers reasonable questions like, if natural medicine is credible and effective, how did it wind up so marginal in the healthcare system? Why has it been treated with so little respect by the medical community for so many years? And just how did healthcare come to mean sick care? 
This story also happens to be the origin story of the naturopathic profession. And I'm happy to tell you that naturopathic medicine has a great origin story. You could even say it's a heroic one. As I tell this story to you, you will hear about some of the heroes of natural medicine and some of the villains, too. Men with motive, means, and opportunity who stood against the courageous natural medicine doctors and sought to crush their reputations and deny their knowledge of health and healing to civilization in order to better serve themselves. You may be surprised to learn that the naturopathic profession was born in the USA and brought to life by someone who loved the USA and came to it with purpose and who worked, sometimes against great odds, to build and develop a life-promoting healthcare system that could contribute to the nation's promising future. So it seems appropriate to include a quote from George Washington's personal physician and a signer to the Declaration of Independence, Dr. Benjamin Rush. Rush wrote, The Constitution of this Republic should make special provision for medical freedom. To restrict the art of healing to one class will constitute the Bastille of medical science. All such laws are un-American and despotic. Dr. Rush went on to say that, Unless we put medical freedom into the Constitution, the time will come when medicine will organize into an undercover dictatorship to restrict the art of healing to one class of men and deny equal privilege to others. The Constitution of the Republic should make a special privilege for medical freedoms as well as religious freedom. Unfortunately, medical freedom was passed over in the final draft of the U.S. Constitution, and Dr. Rush's prediction has proved to be prophetic. So this is a fitting beginning to our tale of tragedy and triumph. Over a century ago, natural medicine doctors recorded their stunning clinical successes in an abundant literature. They practiced frontline medicine. They dealt confidently and effectively with primary care medical issues. They also faced the shadow and threat of an emerging era of big pharma and biomedical technology, both of which, like noxious weeds, took root all around them and then took over. Much has changed for American citizens in the 100-plus years since the founding era of my profession and the rise of the medical monopoly. Consider our present state. Food is irradiated, pasteurized, and had its genes modified. Municipal water supplies are now contaminated with excreted drugs from uppers to downers, from mood enhancers to muscle relaxers. The air we breathe may be poisonous due to persistent chemicals and radioactive particles, Our children receive dozens of vaccines before entering the school system. And all the members of a family are likely to be taking pharmaceutical products as a normal part of their lives. Dad on Viagra, Plavix, and Lipitor. Mom on Prozac with a little help from Ambien. And little Billy and Susan on Ritalin and Adderall. If we could but shift the focus of our national health care conversation from concern about the people who send the bills, like medical institutions and insurers, To concern about the people that pay the bills, we the people, the whole of our society might be better informed about a few fundamental facts. It does not matter where you live, the entire world's medical system is now dominated by the same philosophy and therapeutic approach that first monopolized medicine in America. But nowhere in the world is the image of that system more revered than in the USA. The thing is, This programmed image of the all-knowing medical system ignores the most fundamental fact. Healthcare today is sick care. 
It concerns itself almost entirely with treating symptoms, even though symptoms are the consequence of sickness rather than the cause. It claims to value prevention, but it defines prevention as early detection of sickness. It turns patients into spectators rather than participants. It labels cancer, AIDS, autoimmune disease, and degenerative disease as the enemy, and it wages an endless and expensive war against them using an arsenal of dangerous drugs and surgical procedures. Meanwhile, most sickness could be resolved and prevented if only we would change the way we relate to nature, to our bodies, to ourselves. The same holds true for our natural environment. In the last century, we have witnessed the medicalization of the life cycle and human health, as if the natural systems that brought humanity to the previous century were a fluke rather than the common sense connection to the natural world that birthed and provided for us. How did that happen? In this presentation, I will tell you about the original divide in the house of medicine, how medicine evolved in early America, and how natural medicine was marginalized in the 20th century, not by some inherent weakness, but by the combined and corruptive influence of money and politics. And as you listen, I hope you can recognize that the same pattern is playing out in our own time, as the medical monopoly and other big industries and agencies that are more concerned with their bottom lines than they are with humanity work constantly to strengthen their hold over the health choices of the nation. Chapter 1. The Great Divide Modern medicine often calls itself traditional medicine and calls other systems of medicine alternative. But modern medicine is not traditional. It's been around a little over a hundred years, while humanity has successfully used herbs, diet, earth, and water for healing since the beginning of recorded history. The original Hippocratic Oath, once taken by doctors, began with this invocation. I swear by Apollo the physician, and by Asclepius, and by Aegea, and Panacea, and by all the gods. Though the names Asclepius and Aegea were invoked together, a profound divide has long existed in medicine. Its roots can be found in Greek mythology, and it branched into two distinct schools of thought about health and disease that have struggled with each other ever since. According to the ancient myth, the centaur, Chiron, taught Asclepius the art of making potions and drugs and gave him the knowledge of surgery. But when Asclepius accepted money in exchange for raising the dead, great god Zeus was sorely offended. Zeus killed him and the resurrected man with a thunderbolt. But because of the good Asclepius had done with his knowledge, Zeus transformed him into the constellation Ophiuchus, the serpent-bearer. Aegea was the goddess of good health. She was a daughter of Asclepius and a companion of Aphrodite. She was associated with the prevention of sickness and the continuation of good health. Her name is the source of the word hygiene. These myths of Aegea and Asclepius are the root that branched into an ongoing struggle between two distinct points of view on what it means to be a physician. Followers of the Aegean Way saw nature as a health-giving environment and sought to engage natural forces to build up resistance to opportunistic organisms and to increase resilience for dealing with bad luck and unfavorable conditions. For them, the most important function of medicine was to discover nature's laws and then teach people how to use those laws to have healthy minds in healthy bodies. 
Followers of the Asclepian Way believed that the chief role of the physician was to treat the sickness and disease that results from living in a hostile environment, and when possible, to correct the imperfections that result from bad luck and unfavorable conditions. Followers of Asclepius believed that they needed to wage war against opportunistic organisms, so they focused on therapies that subdue, suppress, and destroy the agents of disease. Let me make this simpler with an agricultural metaphor. It's the difference in approach between organic gardening, with its reliance on helpful insects and companion plants, and the monoculture of industrial agriculture, with its reliance on pesticides and herbicides. And if we use an agricultural metaphor to talk about human health, Aegeans seek to build the soil, Asclepians seek to destroy the bugs. In modern terms, the Aegean way is concerned with physiology, the study of living systems, and the Asclepian way concerns itself with pathology, the study of disease. The Asclepian approach dominates the world today, and you can learn about it everywhere. But what do we know about natural medicine? Chapter 2, Naturopathic Roots. We can trace the roots of natural medicine and all medicine back 2,400 years to the time of Hippocrates. We credit this name with removing medical practice from superstition by recognizing that health problems are the result of natural processes, not an affliction or punishment sent from the gods. Hippocrates is considered the father of modern medicine because in his 70 books, he described many diseases and treatments after detailed observation, he attempted a unifying theory of disease, and he laid down the basics of both the subjective and objective examination. And though both sides of the divided house of medicine hold Hippocrates in high regard, interestingly, he was more Aegean than Asclepian. From Hippocrates, we take these natural medicine roots as important understandings. That there exists a natural healing power in the human body. That we can activate and empower it when we eat whole, natural, unadulterated foods. And that our thoughts and feelings have real effects on our physical health. Hippocrates also left us a wonderful quote that describes the foundation of his approach to healthcare. Let food be thy medicine, and medicine be thy food. But do take note, if Hippocrates were alive today, that statement might get him jail time or a heavy fine, since by law only the FDA can claim that something cures, heals, or improves your health. And they don't seem to be very good at it. Not when they let known endocrine disruptors into the food supply and toxic chemicals and personal care products and sensor health information that might save millions of lives, but I digress. Back to the early roots of natural medicine. Samuel Hahnemann was the founder of homeopathy. Hahnemann was a chemist by training who, through trial and error, discovered that a highly diluted dose of a toxic substance, when given to a sick person, can heal the very same symptoms the full poison would cause in a well person. Hahnemann treated thousands of difficult and chronic cases that defied the best care from Europe's regular doctors. This made him famous, and physicians from Europe and America came to him for coaching in the new science and art of healing, homeopathy. Homeopathy was imported to the U.S. from Germany in 1790, and it was held in high regard here. Charles Dickens, Nathaniel Hawthorne, Harriet Beecher Stowe, Daniel Webster, and Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, Mark Twain, even John D. Rockefeller Sr., the monopolist behind the medical monopoly, they were all fans of homeopathy. 
Across the pond, Goethe, Pope Pius X, and the British royal family preferred it. It's the second most popular system of medicine in the world today. There's even a statue of Hahnemann in Washington, D.C., and there are hospitals that carry his name. Perhaps the main reason for homeopathy's immense popularity in the U.S. was its success in treating the infectious epidemic diseases that raged throughout America and Europe during the 1800s. Documents show that only 3% of homeopathic patients died compared to 48-60% to of those under orthodox medical treatment. Yet throughout his lifetime, Samuel Hahnemann experienced ridicule, harassment, and poverty. Samuel Thompson was a self-taught American herbalist and founder of the system of medicine known as Thompsonian medicine, which enjoyed wide popularity in 19th century America. When his wife nearly died after being treated by conventional doctors, Thompson consulted with two herbalists. As a result of the whole experience, he was one of the first men in America to actually oppose the methods used by the doctors of his day, methods like bleeding and the use of poisonous medicines like mercury. He championed the idea of democratizing medicine, with every house having someone in it who knows how to handle the health challenges of living. Every man a doctor, he called it. He was convinced that would serve people's health better than binding medicine to professionals who needed to make money from it. So in 1809, just about five years after various states had begun issuing their own medical licenses, Samuel Thompson developed his philosophy and system of botanical treatment. He got a patent for his system, and in 1810, he offered a $20 kit containing medicines, an FAQ called the Thompsonian Manual, and he included a nice certificate authorizing the use of the kit for healing. Like many before and after, he was ridiculed and called a quack by the conventional doctors of his day. They resented both his popularity and his contemptuous criticisms of their techniques. Wooster Beach is the founder of eclectic medicine. An MD, he passionately opposed the Asclepian medicine of the early 19th century because it relied on bloodletting, purgatives, and addictive opiates. He drew some of his treatment ideas from the Thompsonians, but believed that botanical practice should be administered by professionals rather than democratized. He developed the principles of his medical practice from a variety of sources, so he decided to call himself an eclectic. Eclectics treated patients rather than pathology. Now, a teaching hospital in the mid-1800s might have wards devoted to regular, eclectic, and homeopathic practice. State medical boards might have all three kinds of doctors. And graduates of eclectic schools could legally call themselves MDs. The last eclectic medical school closed in my hometown of Cincinnati in 1939. And once the final eclectic MD died... The right to the MD title became exclusive to regular school graduates. The greatest collection of books, papers, and publications of the eclectic physicians can still be found at the Lloyd Library and Museum in Cincinnati. Vincent Priestnitz was a pioneer in hydrotherapy, the use of water in the treatment of illness. He began his life as the son of a poor blind farmer. His insight into the use of water cure began when, as a boy, he saw a wounded deer shot in the thigh bathing in a nearby stream. It covered its injury with flowing water, and day by day he watched as the animal improved and then completely recovered. When Vincent Priestnitz was 18, he was thrown by a horse and run over by a wagon. Facing a prognosis of permanent disability, 
he remembered and tried to imitate the deer's example of using cold water. But rather than laying in a stream, he used wet bandages to hold the cold water in place. He completely recovered and then turned his home into a treatment center to help others. Father Knipe had developed tuberculosis by the age of 26. Then he read a small book on hydrotherapy. That convinced him to take regular dips in the icy Danube River. The result, he regained his health as his tuberculosis went into remission. After that, when he was called upon to give dying people last rites, he would first try reviving them with his water cure, and many times he was successful. Then he completely cured a woman of cholera using the same methods, and word got around that the cholera chaplain gave fast and free help and turned no one away. Well, this made the doctors and pharmacists angry, and they had him brought up on charges. Knipe explained to the judge that it was hard for people to find a doctor in his area, and even when they did, people couldn't afford care. The judge acquitted Father Knipe and granted him the right to cure the needy and the destitute. Knipe's book, My Water Cure, was published in 1886, and it took Europe by storm, becoming a bestseller. We harvest these roots from what he referred to as his five pillars of health. Water cure, plant medicines, exercise, a healthy diet, and a balanced lifestyle. The result of his work was that his small parish became an internationally known health resort, and he spoke to over a million people in the three years he spent traveling and speaking. Knipe died at the age of 76 in 1897. Along with Emperor Wilhelm II and Bismarck, he was one of the three most famous people in the German Empire, and the founder of my profession was one of the last people he helped to heal. I'll tell you more about that in just a little while. Helen Wilmans was born into wealth and comfort in 1831 in Fairfield, Illinois. She was the valedictorian of her college class, and she made a courageous and uncommon decision to leave an abusive marriage of 20 years and pursue her dream of becoming a journalist. But things didn't work out, and on a rainy November day, standing in the streets of Chicago, out of options with 25 cents in her pocket, she had a startling revelation. Fear is the crippling force that keeps people in poverty and misery. So instead of feeding her own fears, she chose to empower herself using her own thoughts to fulfill her dreams. And so she did. Before Tony Robbins, Wayne Dyer, and Deepak Chopra, she was writing books and articles about belief, affirmation, the power of faith, and the right use of will. Louis Kuhn was sick and suffering from cancer in his stomach and lungs. He was in terrible pain. After being disappointed by the inability of regular medicine to help him at all, he turned to natural methods. His book, The New Science of Healing, inspired many of the early naturopathic doctors. Kuhn converted his successful factory business in Leipzig, Germany, into a large sanitarium where he cured thousands of people of a wide range of illness and disease. Adolf Just was a young apprentice to a bookseller when he fell ill. That's when he began his self-directed study of natural remedies. In 1896, Just wrote a best-selling book entitled Return to Nature, and that became a sort of roadmap for nature curists. Just built a nature retreat center that he called the Youngborn, or Fountain of Youth, in the Hartz Mountains of Eisenberg, Germany. It was a place where people could go to heal in a natural environment. His most prominent guest was Franz Kafka, who came in 1912 and stayed for three weeks to cure his writer's block. Just popularized the idea of using earth and clay for poultices, 
bandages, and compresses. Mahatma Gandhi was so influenced by Adolf Just's rebellion against orthodox medical treatments that it helped him to formulate his own health ideology. In 1918, Just started a company, Luvos, to manufacture medicinal clay-based products for both internal and external applications. And to this day, Luvos products are the only medicinal clay products recognized as pharmaceuticals in Germany. These are some, not all, of the pioneers of nature cure and natural medicine that created the roots that would eventually blossom into my profession. At the turn of the 20th century, their work was well-known and widely respected around the world and across the USA. Chapter 3, 19th Century Medicine. There were essentially three kinds of doctors in America in the 19th century, regular, eclectic, and homeopathic. Hospitals might have wings devoted to each. For a brief period of time, some licensing boards were arranged along the same lines. But where did that term regular come from, and what did it mean? Doctors of the Asclepian lineage organized themselves into professional medical societies. These were unions of a sort. Then they set up and began administering their own exams and licenses as early as 1766 while lobbying political power to give them local control of all medical practice. They persuaded politicians that the public didn't know what was good for it, and neither did the politicians, but the medical society did, so put them in charge and they'd take care of everything. By the early 1800s, various states did put these unions in charge of regulations, standards, and doctor certification. In this way, they became medical orthodoxy. Through self-regulation, they considered themselves regulars. The term irregular referred to those physicians in the Aegean lineage who did not belong to one of the regular state or local medical societies, or who had not graduated from one of the regular's medical schools and therefore didn't have a license granted by the regular's board of examiners. So homeopathic doctors and natural medicine doctors became known as the irregulars or unregulated. The years from 1780 to 1850 are sometimes called the age of heroic medicine because the regular physicians staged what they thought of as heroic interventions when dealing with disease. I'm talking about aggressive bloodletting, intestinal purging, vomiting, and blistering of their patients. These treatments were actually harmful and responsible for the sickness and death of many, including the nation's first president, George Washington, whose sudden onset sore throat one evening was treated with three bloodlettings, followed by 68 grams of calomel, a mercury-containing formula. This weakened and then poisoned him, but of course his death was attributed to the throat infection. Throughout the latter 18th and first half of the 19th century, regular physicians resorted to ever larger doses of mercury and arsenic and bled their patients more. If some was good, more must be better. The regular doctors who used these practices were hated and feared, and people preferred to avoid them if at all possible. That, plus all the competition they had from the irregular doctors, like the much-preferred eclectics and homeopaths, made it difficult for regulars to earn a living. And they were frequently on the receiving end of verbal attacks and insults. Thomas Jefferson himself called them an inexperienced and presumptuous band of medical tyrants let loose upon the world. In the early 1800s, the regulars convinced state legislatures to pass new licensing laws to restrict or prohibit the practice of herbal and homeopathic medicine. 
As more states came into compliance with the restrictions of the regulars, American society reacted to their increasing control. Lay healers, natural medicine doctors, as well as artists, farmers, and working people all joined together to create a popular health movement that successfully overturned these laws by 1850. Meanwhile, aspiring doctors were drawn to the ever more popular homeopathy and eclecticism. Medical societies, unhappy with their loss of control, shifted strategy. If they couldn't block the irregulars with laws, then they would outnumber them. Between 1800 and 1900, some 400 regular medical schools were set up. And it worked. By 1860, the regulars outnumbered other kinds of doctors by a factor of 10 to 1. But as their numbers grew, the increased competition from their own made earning a living even more difficult, and many could not. The regular medical profession, already held in low esteem, now had the highest rate of suicide in the nation. And the poor quality of graduates from their schools and the harmful methods they employed had cost them whatever confidence society might have had in them. To regain that confidence, the regular medical societies knew they had to reduce enrollment and raise standards in their schools. But the schools, with their dependence on tuition, were unwilling to change. In 1847, the state medical societies, operating separately, banded together to form the American Medical Association. The AMA was born to fulfill two missions. They had to find a way to improve the social standing of their members, while at the same time increasing their earning potential. From the proceedings of their first convention in Philadelphia in May of 1847, you can hear the frustration in this complaint. We have an army of doctors amounting by a recent computation to 40,000. And if we add to the 40,000 the long list of irregular practitioners who swarm like locusts in every part of the country, well, the proportion of patients is still further reduced. To make more money, they had to counter the growing influence of natural healers and homeopaths. And to do this, they would demean, diminish, and destroy their competition and undermine their credibility, branding them as quacks, harassing them in public, and slandering them at every opportunity. Here's a quick summary of the early AMA history. Once the AMA is founded in 1847, it quickly publishes a code of medical ethics that prohibits regular doctors from talking with the competition under threat of losing their membership and license. In 1849, the AMA establishes its Quack Remedies Board, and in 1868 defines the term quackery as the sale or administration of treatments that are not approved by legally constituted medical authorities, by which they of course meant themselves. Now, there is one more important development that contributed to the momentum for change at the time of naturopathic medicine's founding that we have to take into account patent medicines, although the term patent medicine is actually a misnomer for what they were. The term originated in England when the royal court granted patents of royal favor for proprietary medicines provided to the royal family. These medicines came to America with the first settlers. And while they may have worked, the patent medicine industry that sprang up in America had other interests, and their products simply didn't work as advertised. In a perverse synthesis of both regular and natural medicine, their labels adapted the language of nature cure to the selling of poisons and lies. Most patent medicines contained high levels of opiates, metals, and alcohol, and caused unwitting purchasers to develop alcohol and drug dependencies. 
As criticism grew, the temperance movement got involved because of the alcohol content in so many of the medicines. Citizens of that era were reluctant to impede their own freedoms with unnecessary laws and regulations, but with the rising tide of discontent, Americans came to believe that ingredients should be disclosed and advertisements should be honest, even if that required the force of law. As the nation approached the 20th century, it was an exciting and ambitious time characterized by an awakening sense of modernity, possibility, and opportunity, combined with a growing skepticism about the status quo and all of this under the fearful shadow of contagion, sickness, and death. City crowding was on the increase, as was political activism. Hemlines were going up and buildings were getting taller. Electricity, telephones, cars, and bicycles were changing society. It was the time of Frank Lloyd Wright in architecture, the Wizard of Oz in literature, and decorative style of Art Nouveau was all the rage. By 1910, there were 76 million Americans in 46 states. Life expectancy for women was 47.3 years, for men, 46.3 years, while for black Americans, it was only 33 years. Mass production of consumer goods was increasing. Also increasing was the adulteration of food and a reliance on vaccination to deal with contagious diseases like smallpox, diphtheria, meningitis, and tetanus. At the turn of the century, in New York City, the number one killer was flu-related pneumonia. Number two was tuberculosis. Number three was diseases of the GI tract. For perspective, today cancer is number one, heart disease is number two, and if you don't count doctor-caused death, number three is still GI problems. Back then, child mortality was simply terrible, with almost 165 deaths for every 1,000 births, compared to the current rate of seven deaths per 1,000 births. The death rate dropped as a wide range of improvements took place, from central heating to clean drinking water to cheaper clothing. The most widely read books of the time, following the Bible, were the Sears Roebuck Catalog and the Montgomery Ward Catalog. Chapter 4, Birth of a Profession. Enter Benedict Lust, the future founder of naturopathic medicine. He was born in 1872 in Baden, Germany. From an early age, Lust dreamt of coming to America, the fabled far-off land of liberty. By 10 years of age, he knew the name of every state and capital in the U.S., every railroad line, every city and mountain. By the age of 16, he devised a way to pay for his trip to the U.S. He would become a first-class waiter in the hospitality industry. He apprenticed for two years in Germany, learning the tricks of the hotel trade, and then traveled to Switzerland to learn French, then on to Paris for the 1889 World's Fair. He traveled to England to catch a boat to the U.S., but just before leaving, all of his money was stolen. That meant another year waiting tables while learning English and Spanish until he had enough cash to try again. He was 20 years old when he landed on Ellis Island in 1892, and he quickly found a job as a waiter at the Savoy Hotel. Now, life as a New York City waiter in the early 20th century meant long working hours and only half a day free every other week. Loost worked hard, and he played hard, too, and this all led to a streetcar mishap resulting in injuries and a complete breakdown of his system. Unable to work, he left New York City to return to Germany to see the famous Father Kneipp for healing. Loost spent eight months restoring his health under Kneipp's care and returned to New York City with a mandate and mission from the cholera chaplain. 
There was great interest in the secrets to health in New York City at the beginning of the 20th century, and the returning Lust would now respond to it. Lust acquired the word naturopathy from its originator, Dr. John Scheele, in 1895. It's composed of two words, natura, which is Latin for nature or birth or cause, and pathos, which is a Greek word for suffering. Thus, the term naturopathy, though cobbled together like many modern technical and scientific terms, effectively means that it was aimed at the cause of suffering. With this name, Lust set out to build a profession and create a movement and to bring the best practices of natural medicine together under one umbrella. Lust felt that this name had, in his words, saved them all, but from what and for what? Well, from organized medicine's threats about practicing medicine without a license, for one thing. But the greater benefit of having this brand name was that they could now develop a body of work and language for it that would be outside of organized medicine's control. In so many ways, Lust was ahead of his time. Much of what he was advocating back then, like using nutrition to treat chronic disease and cancer, is still cutting edge today. His vision was free of racism, classism, and sexism, too. Lust sought to empower women rather than suppress them. Lust's writing and magazines introduced America to yoga and Ayurveda. Lust was uninhibited about expressing his love for natural medicine and his disapproval of regular medicine's health-damaging therapies. He wrote, We believe in the self-healing and self-regulating power of nature, that nature can be assisted in restoring a normal equilibrium by various natural remedies, such as air, water, sun, earth, heat, rest, exercise, and food. He wrote, We believe that drugs as remedies are in every instance injurious to the human system, that except in cases where heroic measures of relief are demanded, they should not be administered to human beings. Luce believed that regular medicine needed to be held to account for the injuries it was inflicting. So he wrote, We believe that the so-called medical science of today is nothing but a jargon of errors and blunders that therefore its practice is dangerous to human life, that it has caused unnumbered patients to be sent to premature graves who would have been saved by the employment of natural methods of cure, and therefore its practice should be abolished. Well, such articulate writing and coherent thinking made Lust a dangerous radical, a threat to the ever-strengthening establishment of organized medicine's control of health care in America. Lust was a gatherer of effective approaches— he recognized that being open to what works is a better approach than being dogmatic. So Lust earned an osteopathic degree, and then an MD degree, and he did so in spite of regular harassment and intimidation by faculty and classmates who knew of his love of nature cure and his reputation for healing. Lust began the first naturopathic school in 1901. It was legally chartered first in New York, then in California, Chicago, Maryland, Florida, and Connecticut. Throughout the history of his school, 30 to 40 percent of the students were women. How unlike the regular medical schools where women were rarely seen or heard. Dr. Carl Schultz opened the second school in Los Angeles. Dr. Lindlar opened a third school in Chicago. Due to their efforts and the efforts of their students, licensing laws giving naturopathic physicians the right to practice would be passed in several states. Have you ever heard it said that behind every good man is a great woman? Let me tell you briefly about the woman who joined with Benedict Lust in the founding of a movement and a profession. Louisa Strobel was an assistant to the famous suffragette Lady Cook. 
Together, they traveled the world three times before Louisa settled in Butler, New Jersey, a short train ride from New York City, where she owned a health retreat along with other property. An entrepreneur and astute businesswoman, her financial status allowed her independence that very few women of her time could dream of. She hired Benedict Lust to provide natural medicine services for her guests at her health retreat center. Their interests overlapped, and that was good for business. She sent people to him. He sent people to her. But Benedict admired and respected her independence and ability. Common health interests, in time, would give way to romantic ties. They married on June 11, 1901. Louisa essentially bankrolled the early naturopathic movement while living a simple life loved and respected by all who knew her. Benedict and Louisa, as the founding parents of a movement that became a profession, endowed naturopathy with a rich inheritance that continues to bring health and healing to people around the world. In spite of determined opposition and often with little support, they kept going in good times and bad and paved the way for the continuation of natural medicine in America through sheer force of will and the determination to do the right thing, the best thing for the betterment of country and humanity. And you should know that they are honored abroad across time and generations. But in America to this day, Benedict Lust remains a mostly unsung healthcare hero, and the naturopathic profession remains healthcare's best kept secret. Chapter 5 Monopoly Takes Over. As the new naturopathic profession grew in size, number of schools, students, state licenses, practitioner knowledge and ability, the American Medical Association, backed by virtually unlimited resources, was beginning to grow in stature and influence. Step by incremental step, the AMA set out to take over the entire medical landscape. And it worked. By the mid-1930s, the natural health movement was in decline and the naturopathic profession suppressed. But how exactly did we wind up with an almost complete monopoly in American medicine, in a nation that values competition and fair play? And how did it happen in such a relatively short period of time? Well, long story short, the AMA got an infusion of hundreds of millions of dollars in Rockefeller Foundation money. At a time when a dollar bought a full day's work, this was an irresistible flood of money and influence. It bought the legislative power to get restrictive laws passed. It carried the regulars into power, and it has protected their monopoly for over a hundred years. But the story is far more interesting than that. There were giants in the land in those days. This was the time of the great robber barons, ruthless monopolists whose love of money, control, and power outweighed all other considerations. By hook and by crook, John D. Rockefeller had control of 90% of the nation's refining capacity through Standard Oil. There was Andrew Carnegie's U.S. Steel and American Tobacco. Cornelius Vanderbilt owned the railways. And there was the fearsome Wall Street banker J.P. Morgan, about whom it was said that God owned men's souls and J.P. Morgan owned the rest. These ruthless and greedy monopolists played to win and stopped at nothing. They gained power through political corruption, absorption of suppliers and distributors, undermining and destroying competitors. This pattern was about to be repeated in the domain of medicine. Remember that when the AMA was organized in 1847, it had clear and specific outcomes in mind, higher status for their profession and higher incomes for their members. 
But clear intent was insufficient to create change. Momentum for change was needed if they ever hoped to get control of the system to meet their objectives. And it came, as three events influenced the mindset of the nation towards more restrictive regulation. Upton Sinclair's novel, The Jungle, written in 1906, was a fact-based novel about immigrant life and the horrid disease-producing conditions of the meatpacking industry in Chicago. His book made people pay more attention to the food they ate and fed the demand for new regulation. Later in his life, Sinclair expressed some disappointment at how the book had missed its target. I aimed at the public's heart, and by accident, I hid it in the stomach. Later that year, in 1906, Collier's Magazine published an investigative article titled Death's Laboratory about the sale of alcohol and chemical-laced medicines, followed by a series of 10 articles entitled The Great American Fraud about phony doctors and fake clinics. The third event that increased momentum for change involved food. In those days, food no longer came from your neighbor's farm. It traveled distance. Food companies could do anything they wanted to do. They could sell rotted meat. They could sell rotten eggs treated with borax. They could put formaldehyde into milk to keep the old milk from going sour. Labels didn't have ingredient lists. Thanks to the determined effort of Harvey Wiley and with strong support from President Theodore Roosevelt, in 1907, Congress passed a Pure Food and Drug Act, paving the way for public health action against unlabeled or unsafe ingredients and misleading advertising. Now, had the law been enforced as it was written, today we might have no caffeine in soft drinks and our food and drugs would be unadulterated and properly labeled. A more wholesome diet would give greater resistance to infection, and we could have set a beneficial example for the whole world to follow. Instead, food manufacturers and drug producers got legislators to render the law harmless to their interests. Popular publications stayed silent about it or actively campaigned against the law in support of their advertisers. The law gave the appearance of regulation, but it was neutralized by industry. That same pattern is in play today, managed by toothless government agencies staffed through a revolving industry door, and the purchased press publishes industry talking points as if they're facts. Wiley got fed up. He resigned in 1912 and wrote a book about the whole experience called History of a Crime. And food and drugs were now firmly on the public's radar. In 1927, the Bureau of Chemistry's regulatory powers were reorganized under a new USDA body, the Food, Drug, and Insecticide Organization. Hmm. This name was shortened to the Food and Drug Administration three years later. Meanwhile, science was the watchword of the day. Scientists were producing visible and exciting breakthroughs for all of society. So regular medicine seized the moment to put itself under a new and more modern label of scientific medicine. The problem in selling this brand was that regular medical education was a mess. It was for-profit, and medical degrees could be purchased through the mail, or students could just go get marginal training at inadequate schools. The result was a system that produced poorly trained doctors with little in common other than a terrible reputation with the public. To have a chance at raising their social standing, they would have to raise standards and at the same time get rid of the riffraff, those who they saw as socially and economically unfit. 
Fixing medical education would help them change their brand and improve their fortunes. So in 1904, the AMA created its Council on Medical Education. They came up with a plan to survey medical schools and expose their weaknesses, and then to use that survey to drive demand for change with both legislators and the public. This was a clever strategy. But by 1908, the AMA was out of money and deeply divided about how and whether to proceed with the survey. With near-perfect timing, the Rockefeller-funded Carnegie Institute offered to take over the entire survey from the AMA. Their interest? Fixing medical education could be very profitable for industry. Consider, the gap between rich and poor was huge. Unhealthy working conditions in factories were almost unbearable. Over 2 million workers were injured and 35,000 killed in factory accidents every year. In a single year, one out of every 11 steelworkers would die on the job. This was all lost productivity for monopolist industrialists who saw workers as human capital. Scientific management had let them engineer increased productivity in their factories. What if scientific management could be applied to medicine? If sickness was just an engineering problem, well, maybe they could get people patched up and back to work more efficiently. The survey was the starting point for a complete overhaul of medicine in America. The AMA was confident that the case for change would make itself once people realized the poor quality of the training their doctors received. Now, before I tell you more about the survey, it seems only right to talk about the fellow who funded it, J.D. Rockefeller Sr. And to give the devil his due, it seems most fitting to start with J.D. Rockefeller's father, William Rockefeller, also known as Devil Bill. Look up Scoundrel in the 1800s and you'll find William Avery Rockefeller. He's only remembered because he was father to the richest man in human history. In one of life's great ironies, Devil Bill specialized in snake oil long before the family name was linked with crude oil and long before the pharmaceutically funded AMA had successfully tagged their competition as snake oil salesmen. Bill was a horse thief, a bigamist, a quack, and a scam artist. He billed himself as William Rockefeller, the celebrated cancer specialist, and he offered this guarantee, all cases of cancer cured unless they've gone too far. His cure cost $25, about two months' pay for an average American of the time. It was named Nujol, and it consisted of a laxative mixed with petroleum. It had a nasty side effect in that it robbed the body of fat-soluble vitamins, so it caused serious deficiencies. After he was indicted for raping a hired girl in 1849, he evaded capture by assuming a new identity, that of Dr. William Levingston from Philadelphia, a name he went by until the day he died in 1906. After his passing, his Nujol product continued to be manufactured and sold by a subsidiary of Standard Oil of New Jersey. And Devil Bill begat John Davidson Rockefeller, who would in time be called the most ruthless American. J.D. was a war profiteer during the Civil War, selling unstamped crates of booze to federal troops at a high markup. That's how he got the capital to get into the oil business. In 1870, J.D., along with his older brother William, incorporated his petroleum holdings into the Standard Oil Company of Ohio. He developed a sophisticated system for making money that involved buying out competitors or putting them out of business. So by 1881, he had achieved a near monopoly of the petroleum industry in the U.S. and was second only to J.P. Morgan in the domain of finance, banks, and railroads. Making money was easy for him. Heck, he was selling candy to his brother at a profit by the age of six, and he never seemed to have enough. But what to do with it? 
Press campaigns and political cartoons against him had made him one of America's most hated men. Picturing him with Congress and the White House in the palm of his hand, filthy factories filling the sky with smoke as he lorded his vast wealth over all. Ironically, J.D. was also generous, making charitable donations since the age of 19 in service to his faith. So people badgered him for money wherever he went. Rockefeller didn't like being hated. On the advice of a PR man named Ivy Lee, who later went to work for the Nazi IG Farben Pharmaceutical Company, Rockefeller resolved to use his charitable giving as the means to change his public reputation. And it worked. In his later years, he was more often remembered for his charity and giving away shiny dimes to children, not for his hyperambition and ruthlessness. But to implement this transformation, he needed help. Enter Frederick Gates, who the New York Times would later call the man who thinks for Rockefeller. Gates and Rockefeller met around 1890 during the negotiations that established the University of Chicago. Rockefeller was so impressed by the efficiency with which Gates worked that he hired him, and then he tasked him to bring order to dealing with thousands of requests for money. Gates believed that the real power of philanthropy was that it made it possible for society's better people, the wealthy, who were clearly favored by God, to identify the causes of society's ills and change them. In 1901, Gates helped Rockefeller to set up the Rockefeller Foundation for Medical Research. Gates wrote, In our dreams we have limitless resources and the people yield themselves with perfect docility to our molding hand. Gates and Rockefeller developed a highly efficient giving system that they called scientific giving, because apparently everything goes better if you put the word scientific on it. This is the matching fund system that allowed them to put J.D.'s donations to the best possible use. Rockefeller could get all the credit for half the price, while the group receiving the funds would be responsible for raising the other half through smaller donations. By funding projects in which he was likely to see a return, either in the short term or long term, his investment was reduced yet again, over time producing more profits from his not-for-profit donations. This fundraising system is common today, but it was a revelation for the wealthy back then. They now had a way to fund their ambitions for medicine. Enter the Flexner brothers. Simon was the fourth of nine children. At the age of 26, he earned his M.D. In 1902, he was appointed the head of the new Rockefeller Institute for Medical Research. His brother Abraham was a former school teacher and a staff member of the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching and a budding expert on best practices in education. December 1908, with the AMA's medical school survey now funded, Abraham was tasked with completing it. The AMA council asked to keep their involvement in the survey a secret. That way, when the report was published, it would appear to come from an objective group rather than a self-serving one and would, in their words, do much to develop public opinion. 
The Flexner Report, published in 1910, graded all 160 medical schools in the U.S. using the AMA's grading approach. A meant the school was exemplary, B that it needed work, and C that it was inadequate and it should be shut down. It offered five key recommendations for reform, and for the most part, they were good ideas for cleaning up the mess of medical education. First, reduce the number of medical schools and physicians. This would help reduce competition and increase earning potential. The report then recommended that basic science be a prerequisite for medical training, because how can you have a science-based medical education without first learning basic science? The report recommended that physicians be trained to practice in a scientific manner and that medical faculty should be required to do research. The thinking was that using the scientific method in practice would help physicians separate fact from fantasy when it came to diagnosis and treatment. And involving medical faculty and research would keep the knowledge base replenished with new information while keeping instructors up to date on the latest developments. The fourth recommendation for reform was to give medical schools control of clinical instruction in hospitals. This makes perfect sense because it would give students a wider range of hands-on experience with patients. But if only AMA-approved schools could offer this experience to students, this change could be used to block competing medical systems from gaining clinical experience and thus increase the AMA's control of medicine. The fifth and last recommendation was to strengthen state regulation of medical licensure. But only graduates of AMA-approved schools would be licensed. The report automatically gave homeopathic and eclectic schools the lowest ranking. It did the same for any school that admitted blacks and women. As the AMA had predicted, a public outcry about the poor quality of medical education followed the publication of the Flexner Report, and the public demanded change. This made it easier for the AMA to convince Congress to take action and declare the AMA as the only body with the right to grant medical school licenses in the United States. The result? From this point on, schools would have to promote the most profitable form of medicine in order to get funded. The foundation now employed Rockefeller's proven combination method of bribery and coercion to get medical schools on board with the program. The osteopathic schools signed up, as did other lower-ranked schools willing to submit to foundation influence and control in order to get funded. A scientific objectivity would have been valuable in doing the survey, but Flexner was biased from the outset. Any approach to medicine that did not require the use of drugs and vaccines was automatically assumed by Flexner to be quackery. His report said as much when he concluded that the public prosecutor and grand jury are the proper agencies for dealing with them. So medical schools that offered training in eclectic medicine or homeopathy were told drop those courses or lose accreditation. Some schools resisted at first, but eventually they all complied or shut their doors. Most rural medical schools closed, and all but two African-American medical colleges were shut down. Midwives were replaced with physicians, making birth a medical event instead of a life cycle event. The poor could no longer afford an education, which suited the industrialists just fine. As the head of U.S. Steel put it, it just didn't make sense to give a $5 boy a $5,000 education. And doctors would now become drug distributors in the most expensive healthcare system ever devised. Two years later, Flexner walked through the revolving door and was made secretary of John D. Rockefeller's General Education Board, where he channeled tens of millions of dollars of Rockefeller money into the medical schools. He persuaded other wealthy people to become philanthropists and support this vision as well, and so he became scientific medicine's greatest fundraiser. 
And what were they raising funds for? Well, at best, this was an educational solution to manage the immediate problems posed by acute sickness. In other words, a sick care system. In the years that followed, as America learned to improve hygiene and sanitation, lifespans lengthened and infectious disease diminished in both morbidity and mortality. And chronic disease began its rise to normalcy in a system completely unequipped to deal with it. From the 2014 periodical Public Health, Rockefeller turned to philanthropy as a means of harnessing science and education to the profit-oriented industrial modernization of society. So the takeover of medical education was done in the name of philanthropy using the same tactics J.D. had used with business rivals, sell out or be forced to close. And maybe that's why, to this day, many people believe that there was a hidden agenda aimed at increasing distribution of the drugs and chemicals produced by Rockefeller's companies. So is that possible? Well, there's no denying that the huge sums of money his foundation donated pushed the medical system towards drug therapy. There is no denying that over the next decade, Rockefeller invested ever more heavily in the oil-related pharmaceutical and chemical companies. And the end result on medicine is not in dispute. Med school compliance required abandoning natural medicine and favoring a new generation of petrochemicals for drugs. Non-patentable treatments that had been used effectively for thousands of years were essentially banned by the medical establishment. Natural medicines for a wide range of health challenges were rooted out and suppressed. And after reform, any teaching of the use of medicinal plants and nutrition to treat illness was viewed as quackery and opposed. Doctors who stepped out of line could lose their licenses. So was increasing his wealth through a drug-pushing medical monopoly Rockefeller's real agenda? It's hard to say. According to one of J.D.'s biographers, his good side was every bit as good as his bad side was bad. Seldom has history produced such a contradictory figure. Now here's a good example of that contradiction. In 1878, Rockefeller wrote to his mother, I am eating celery, which I understand to be very good for nervous difficulty. And in a book of remembrances that J.D. wrote in 1909, he said this about illness and health. Men who are studying the problem of disease tell us that it is becoming more and more evident that the forces which conquer sickness are within the body itself, and that it is only when these are reduced below the normal that disease can get a foothold. The way to ward off disease, therefore, is to tone up the body generally. And when disease has secured a foothold, the way to combat it is to help these natural resisting agencies which are in the body already. So, the monopolist behind the foundation that financed the monopolization of medicine believed in and used natural medicine for himself. Yet the new medical system he helped put in place ignored these kinds of ideas completely and vigorously suppressed those who championed them. By 1977, the Flexner Report recommendations would be extended to the whole world by the Rockefeller-funded World Health Organization. This turned pharmaceutical medicine into a near-global monopoly in which doctors and schools of medicine must go along to get along, or they don't get to go along. Now, what of Flexner? Towards the latter part of his life, Flexner reflected on the impact of his report on medical schools and expressed some regret. Science, in the very act of solving problems, creates more of them, he wrote. Flexner could see that his scientific medicine had focused on science as engineering and left out clinical care. The work was, as he put it, all guts and brains and no heart. 
He recognized that bad water, inadequate plumbing, impure food, and a lousy work environment were linked to poor health and that, in his words, the endeavor to improve medical education through ironclad prescriptions is a wholly mistaken effort. He wasn't alone in those regrets. Others in positions of responsibility in this new system could see how it was falling short. Consider the words of Dr. David Edsall, the dean of both the medical school and the School of Public Health at Harvard from 1922 to 1935. Here's how he described a medical education. Students were obliged to learn about an interminable number of drugs, many of which were valueless, many of them useless, some probably even harmful. Few students have time or energy to explore any subject in a spirit of independent interest. A little comparison shows there is less intellectual freedom in the medical course than in almost any other form of professional education in this country. Conditions at Harvard were similar to those at every other medical school in America in this new paradigm of scientific medicine. The human body had become nothing but a collection of unconnected individual organs and systems. With the release of the Flexner Report, the now well-funded and politically empowered AMA lobbied for ever more control at the state and federal levels with renewed determination, and they got it. But the people reacted badly to it, and in response, their calls for freedom from the AMA's harsh therapies were redefined in the press as an attempt to discredit the AMA. How dare you impugn our integrity, sir? From 1910 to 1931, there was a very public struggle with increasingly marginalized natural medicine practitioners and others who formed the National League for Medical Freedom in response to ever more restrictive legislation. When this opposition succeeded and monopoly-seeking bills failed, which did still happen on occasion, the AMA would ironically proclaim that the opponents of their bills were trying to impose the tyranny of their selfish interests upon the people which was exactly what the AMA was doing. And by the way, that's the same charge leveled in our time against parents with legitimate concerns about vaccine safety and citizens disturbed by the unlabeled GMO experiment. The industry response is always, those selfish people. The simple truth, the people wanted the freedom to choose health instead of sickness. No more, no less. And that's how it started. But there was more to do. The AMA now had education locked down to seal their power over licensing. In 1912, the Federation of State Medical Boards, staffed by AMA members, adopted the report's school rating system for granting licenses. Then they created a council on pharmacy and chemistry to get rid of all over-the-counter treatments that did not require a doctor's visit. Why? Bad for the doctor business. They kicked out members who worked with companies that provided free worker health care. Why? Bad for the doctor business. They attacked charities and churches for giving free medical care to the poor. Why? Bad for the doctor business. Hospitals that did not fix their prices lost AMA accreditation. Why? Bad for the doctor business. They lobbied to stop pharmacists from refilling prescriptions at the request of the patient. Why? Bad for the doctor business. By 1934, the AMA House of Delegates announced... All features of medical service in any method of medical practice should be under the control of the medical profession. No other body or individual is legally or educationally equipped to exercise such control. I have a political cartoon from 1933. It shows a menacing octopus in the center of the image labeled the medical octopus, with tentacles in every direction wrapped around some aspect of American life. 
the home, public schools, the press, the treasury, the legislatures, the army and navy, and all the hospitals. The caption above the image says, the dream of the medical octopus. And the caption below the image says, if the people do not wake up, his dream will come true. When the cartoon was drawn, such control was still in process but not yet complete. But the people did not wake up, and the dream of the medical octopus did come true. Today, in California, healthy, unvaccinated children are denied access to public education, stripped of the right of informed consent for risky medical procedures by a purchased politician, a medical doctor and state senator who is the recipient of large amounts of campaign cash from the industry that he so eagerly served. He cast his vice as virtue and called the thousands of concerned parents who fought his bill selfish. Chapter 6, Persecutions and Prosecutions In the story we've been told all our lives, it was the AMA that brought scientific discipline to medicine, and that is what justified their monopoly. In reality, the AMA offered itself in service to its membership to be used by the Rockefeller Empire for its own purposes— The AMA provided legitimacy to the Foundation's efforts, and the FDA provided protection for the takeover. The AMA was the well-paid bouncer. The FDA was the enforcer. This is what Luce referred to in his writing as the medical trust. And through time, this unholy alliance grew ever stronger in its control and intolerance. In the words of Dr. Herbert Lay, former commissioner of the FDA, whose claim to fame is that he was included on the enemies list of disgraced former President Richard Nixon, quote, The FDA protects the big drug companies and is subsequently rewarded, and using the government's police powers, they attack those who threaten the big drug companies. People think that the FDA is protecting them. It isn't. What the FDA is doing and what the public thinks it is doing are as different as night and day. This alliance of the Rockefeller Foundation, the AMA, and the FDA, and the revolving door it built and maintains between industry, the AMA, and the government, continues to impact the lives of all Americans to this very day. The FDA still provides a kind of legal immunity for companies that put chemicals into food, drugs into our elders, and vaccines into our children by way of their approvals and declarations of safety and effectiveness. Press and politicians provide cover in exchange for money, and citizens without means are left with almost no legal recourse when something inevitably goes wrong. Through their influence on government, this hidden alliance now controlled education, licensing, treatment options, and pricing. And so, medicine became a very profitable business, and acceptable medicine required expensive drugs, surgery, and the recently discovered radiation. In spite of numerous scandals in the years that followed, the monopoly powers remained in place. Drug and profiteering scandals, losses at trial for corruption, and antitrust actions, none of it has loosened their hold. Political decisions about health care continue to recognize and reward their exclusive control. And now we see exactly how it was done. Through funding campaigns and engagement with candidates who would do their bidding, through the use of police power to enforce their control and public relations to bolster their image, through the installation of their gatekeepers in state and federal agencies, they tightened their control and undermined competitors. 
medical authorities, with the aid of state and city governments, meant to close off all competition at the local level. Benedict Luce wrote extensively about the challenges and tribulations natural medicine doctors faced from the witch hunt that followed. In 1912, Luce wrote, A number of new arrests have been made recently. Some of these cases have been tried, including one of this editor and his assistant, and all lost. Others are under bail from $300 to $3,000, sitting in court every day until their case is called. Then they are carried to the bench of justice like innocent lambs and find money and prison sentences as if they were the greatest criminals, enemies to mankind, foes to the welfare of society, scoffed at by the public, misrepresented, and unfairly treated by the rotten press that has been hired by this medical trust. The money that is collected from the fines minus the expenses of the court then goes to the medical society, and with this money they engage sleuths and detectives who go around and work up new cases. As the police power of the city, state, and nation were put to work enforcing AMA control, people were arrested, tried, and convicted for giving dietary instruction or massage, chiropractors for using their hands to heal. The entrapment and arrests drove many to suicide. The fines were heavy and there was no escape. The noose tightened as more of medicine and healthcare were pulled into the exclusive control of the well-funded and organized scientific medicine. The takeover progressed and deepened unabated, and yet, in the face of an opposition determined to cast them as fakes, scoundrels, and fools, the natural medicine doctors still were not losing their patients. So the AMA invested in more public relations campaigns to bring the reluctant public along. Over and over, day after day, week after week, year after year, relentless propaganda campaigns run by the complicit press taught society that natural medicine was to be dismissed, disregarded, and discarded entirely, while the virtues of scientific medicine were regaled and trumpeted. They developed and refined their methods for working with the press— suggesting headlines, orchestrating PR campaigns, and generally leveraging fear to their own advantage. They knew that a compliant press would not bite the hands that feed them, their advertisers. So is it any surprise that in the years that followed, the press printed the talking points of the AMA and the drug industry and promoted the AMA party line at every turn? The persistent message went along these lines. If your doctor isn't one of ours, they're quacks. You don't know what's good for you when it comes to medicine, and that's why our doctors need to have, should have, must have total control. It's not for us. We're doing this for you. Their members railed against the quacks in speeches, wrote articles and placed them in prominent positions in popular publications, and whenever they wrote for or spoke to the press, they used extremely dismissive and angry language to stir up social anxiety, discomfort, and dis-ease. So was there quackery? Well, of course there was. Benedict Luce saw it as a natural consequence of the marginalization of legitimate natural medicine providers— he wrote about the woeful misfits, the outright fakers and cheats, quote, That is the fate of any science, any profession, which the unjust laws place beyond the pale. Where there is no official recognition and regulation, you will find charlatans operating on the same basis as the conscientious practitioners. But was the quackery limited to natural medicine practitioners? Well, of course not. The regulars had plenty of bad apples and they had the power to protect them, too. After all, their quackery was scientific, and that's still true to this day.
Without the monetary resources and rich network of connections that their oppressors had, it was difficult for natural medicine practitioners to hold their ground, much less make any headway. Nevertheless, from 1918 to 1937, the public continued to show great interest in natural medicine. The drugless doctors weren't losing their patients, and Luce was thinking ahead, trying to learn from what the AMA had done. He could see that the naturopaths needed political access and influence, or it was a lost cause. In 1922, the annual American Naturopathic Association Convention was held in Washington, D.C., over 700 attended, and many were turned away. And President Harding received delegates from the convention at the White House. But the medical trust kept pounding away, one restrictive and coercive bill after another. From 1938 to 1970, the clout of the AMA and the drug industry's backing led to the near-complete legal and economic suppression of all forms of natural medicine. This pattern would continue until all alternatives to pharmaceutical medicine were shoved into almost complete irrelevance. The only thing that stopped them was their own ambition and an awakening population. In 1977, a turning point was reached when the chiropractors, who had had enough of the harassment and attacks, took the AMA to court. In Wilk versus the AMA, they made the case that the AMA had the express goal of completely eliminating chiropractic. They displayed the AMA's hate-filled and fear-promoting language that labeled chiropractors as killers and rabid dogs and their profession as an unscientific cult that presents a danger to public safety. And they were found guilty of conspiracy, their words finally shown to be nothing but propaganda. When the AMA was thus forced to call off their dogs, the ever-resilient natural medicine began quickly to rebound. The back-to-nature, ecology, and women's movements of the late 1960s and 70s, along with the public's growing awareness of the importance of nutrition, as well as growing disenchantment with the dehumanization and expense of the medical system, helped to kick things into gear. Chapter 7, Medical Mussolini's. Now, perhaps I sounded harsh when talking about the AMA. Let me mention two key figures who guided the AMA in the first half of the 20th century. They consolidated its political gains and increased its control and wealth. George Simmons began his 25-year reign as head of the AMA in 1899, and because it was near bankruptcy at the time, he came up with the money-making idea of using a seal of approval to get drug companies to place expensive advertisements in the Journal of the American Medical Association. The seal, mind you, was not based on testing of claims of any kind. All that was required for it was to pay the fee. But by 1909, the Journal of the American Medical Association was pulling in $150,000 a year in ad revenue, which was a great deal of money at the time. It was Simmons who established the Council on Medical Education in 1904 and aimed it at eliminating competition. It was Simmons who came up with the AMA Propaganda Department in 1913, aimed at attacking any and all unconventional treatments and those who practiced them. And it was Simmons who hired Morris Fishbein, M.D., to do the AMA's publicity. Simmons appears not to have had a valid medical degree. At one point, he billed himself as a homeopath, and he sold quack medicines before coming to the AMA. 
His 25 years of leadership came to an end when he was taken to court and sued by his wife for divorce, for trying to poison her through her food and drink and have her declared insane. The sensational trial ruined his image, and the case gave birth to a key plot device in many books and later movies like Gaslight, starring Ingrid Bergman as the wife. When Simmons was forced out by the scandal in 1924, he took all of his personal files home and he burned them. Morris Fishbein's reign begins. On Fishbein's watch, tobacco companies became the largest advertiser in JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association. Maybe you remember seeing some of the 9 out of 10 doctors recommend cigarette ads that appeared on the scene in print and television a decade later. Then Fishbein had the idea to extend the seal to food products like the soft drinks that contribute to the general sickness and obesity in our society. By 1950, the AMA's advertising revenue from these products was more than $9 million a year. There were problems under Fishbein's leadership. In 1938, Fishbein and the AMA were indicted for conspiracy and the restraint of trade under the Sherman Antitrust Act for trying to stop a medical cooperative from providing hospital and medical care to its members. The AMA was convicted and fined. In the 1940s, a Texas oil man, Harold Hoxie, made a deathbed pledge to his father to offer a family herbal remedy that cured cancer in horses to people if it proved workable and to do so whether they could pay or not. So he opened a clinic and started getting great results. An impressed doctor set up a public trial, and Hoxie was given a Chicago policeman for the experiment. The officer had terminal cancer and only had a few weeks to live. After Hoxie's treatment, the man recovered completely. Now, Fishbein tried several times during his AMA career to buy natural medicine cancer cures and remove them from the market. In 1949, he began a negotiation with Harold Hoxie to obtain Hoxie's increasingly popular herbal cancer cure. But Hoxie had made that deathbed promise to his father. Fishbein stubbornly insisted that once he owned it, he'd do what he pleased with it. And that ended the negotiation. That's when Fishbein went after Hoxie in a nasty article ironically titled Blood Money. But to Fishbein's surprise, Hoxie fought back. He sued Fishbein, the paper that printed the article, and the AMA Journal, too. And when he had his day in court, Hoxie won. Said the judge, I am of the opinion and belief that Hoxie has cured these people of cancer. Articles and utterances by defendant Morris Fishbein are false, slanderous, and libelous. In the hubbub that followed, Fishbein was forced to resign. No problem. He went right to work for the tobacco industry. Then the FDA picked up where Fishbein had left off, confiscating Hoxie's work and forcing him out of the country and publishing warnings against the treatment while declaring cancer can be cured only through surgery or radiation. By 1960, all 17 of Hoxie's clinics had been padlocked. Now, what exactly was his crime? He had a working herbal cancer cure, and he just wanted to make it available to everyone. There are many stories about Fishbein's corruptive and corrosive influence on American health care. Yet during his reign of terror, Time magazine called him, quote, the nation's most ubiquitous, most widely maligned, and perhaps most influential medico. To this day, he has an institute named after him, and he seems to be part of the proud history of the American Medical Association. 
The brand of medicine the AMA offered was best suited for the battlefield, because when soldiers are getting their limbs blown off and dying in the trenches from overwhelming sepsis, the fast pharmaceutical fix can be a lifesaver. But the AMA succeeded in gaining dominance of the medical system not by the might of their medicines, but by long-range planning, incremental advance, the might of the almighty dollar, and the media voice, police, and legislative power they purchased. Chapter 8. Bitter Pills Now you may rightly ask, how does it profit us to understand how the sick care system that rules the world today gained its position of control? Well, the answer is remarkably simple. Knowing what was done might protect us against similar efforts today, so we're not so easily propagandized by omnipresent media messaging. Since the domination of government by the wealth and privilege of industry is a repeating pattern, perhaps we can even learn the lessons of history and not be doomed to repeat them. And with a century of perspective, it's now possible to take an honest look at the fruits of both systems, orthodoxy and natural medicine. I want to preface what I'm about to say by telling you, I can see where a certain amount of good has come to us from the way this all played out. There is no question that we have seen big scientific advances in our understanding of molecular biology, DNA, and infectious organisms through these well-funded research facilities. We've dramatically increased our understanding of human physiology, ecology, and the process of aging. Science and medical science have been a boon to human progress in too many ways to count. But what about the medical system that delivers our sick care? How is that working for us? We have paid the price for a system designed to get workers back to work that turns people into revenue streams and maximizes profits to the hospitals and drug companies. We spend more on health care and get less health and less care in this highly specialized and ridiculously expensive system that has so little to offer for most of the health problems people now face. And the numbers speak for themselves, so prepare yourself for some telling statistics. 250 million Americans are overweight and obese. There are 360,000 American deaths related to obesity annually. The percentage of U.S. children who are obese has tripled since 1970. The CDC estimates that 40% of the U.S. population is diabetic or pre-diabetic, and that number could be 50% by 2020. Now, what's driving that? In part, it's the standard American diet, which is loaded with sugar and chemicals and pretty much unregulated by the FDA. This diet is rich in GMOs, but poor in nutritional value. And so Americans lead the world in obesity and unhealthy lifestyles and consume 80% of the weight loss products in the world. Meanwhile, 70% of American adults have been diagnosed with chronic disease. 75% of our healthcare dollars are spent on managing and treating that chronic disease. Yet most chronic disease can be controlled or better prevented with healthy lifestyle and exercise. And I'm referring to serious health challenges like cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, infertility, sleep apnea, high cholesterol, high blood pressure, osteoporosis, depression, anxiety, and more. The U.S. is also the only developed nation with increased maternal mortality. We rank number 37 in health and number one in health care costs relative to the rest of the developed world. 
And in a strange twist, the 800 million starving people in the world are now outnumbered by the 1 billion people who are overweight as a consequence of a medicine and food system made in America and deployed worldwide. Now let's talk about those gleaming temples of the monopoly, hospitals, where patients are the supplicants seeking favor from the white-coated doctors who are the high priests. There's an old saying, hospitals are great places to be sick, but terrible places to get well. Consider, in the March 2014 Journal of Patient Safety, we read that preventable harm kills between 210,000 to 440,000 patients who go to a hospital each year for care and wind up dead as the result of a mistake. That makes medical errors the third leading cause of death in America behind heart disease and cancer. Let's put that in perspective. Some 5,000 military deaths during our military engagements in Iraq and Afghanistan, and we were greatly and rightly saddened at that loss. Yet it would appear that our society accepts 200,000 deaths from medical errors like it somehow doesn't mean anything significant. Doesn't that trouble you? It troubles me. Now, I realize that the D in doctor does not stand for deity. And medical doctors also have to somehow survive the corrupt and destructive challenges of this sick system that they work in. But based on what we know of human nature, it seems likely that death by mistake is underreported and the number is unreliable. You can only explain so much of this away. Meanwhile, it's not like hospitals are lacking for revenue to make improvements. Many hospitals have operating profits in the hundreds of millions, and they pay their CEOs from 2 to $6 million a year plus benefits. Thanks to the drug-dependent prescription-writing medical system and the pharmaceutical industry that profits from it, the nation and the world have serious drug problems. At the same time, the drug industry has big profits because the drug business is big business. How big? Pharmaceuticals are a trillion-dollar global business. Just the global influenza market alone, and yes, I just said influenza market, was worth $6.3 billion to Big Pharma in 2014. And that same year, 4.4 billion drug prescriptions were written in the U.S. Americans spent $330 billion on those prescriptions, and Pharma spent $24 billion marketing their drugs to doctors. It's as if there's gold in those shots and pills. And if there is one thing that the drug industry is great at, it's selling those products. Statistics from 2014 show that for every dollar that pharma spent on basic research, $19 went to marketing and public relations. The top companies in this corrosive industry have all pled guilty to bribery of doctors, lying to the FDA, hiding clinical trial data, and fraudulent marketing. That's on products for which they can be held accountable. For vaccines, since the 1980s, they have no liability at all. The mumps vaccine, for which Merck is on trial, was ringing the register for them to the tune of $620 million a couple of years back. More now because of coercive laws the industry's been writing and introducing to legislatures with the help of bought politicians who are eager to win their favor. Does this seem healthy to you? But wait, there's more. 106,000 U.S. deaths per year are from prescribed drugs. Prescriptions are the number four killer of Americans. 89% of Medicare patients take a prescribed drug every day. 46% of Medicare patients take five or more. 
56% take meds prescribed by more than one doctor. 60 million Americans regularly use painkillers. One in seven hospital admissions are from the bad effects of those painkillers. Americans take 80% of the world's opiate painkillers. Does that seem healthy to you? My point is that the impact from all that medication on human health is significant, but perhaps more significant is that drugs have side effects, and side effects usually get treated by our sick care system with more drugs. To this day, the FDA continues to approve drugs before their long-term effects could possibly be known. Look up Paxil, Oxycontin, Statins, Vioxx, Prozac. You'll find so much conflicting data, it's hard to believe the FDA could ignore it all, and yet... Here's an example. In 1987, the FDA approved Prozac to treat depression. Clinical studies performed on Prozac showed 191 negative side effects per 100 people. Two months before the FDA approved Prozac, there had already been 27 deaths from the controlled clinical trials. By 1992, Prozac had already scored another 28,600 documented adverse reactions, plus an additional 1,700 deaths, according to an FDA report. And in 2003, the FDA approved Prozac for children. The FDA also approved direct-to-consumer advertising for drug companies. And now that it's legal, pharmaceutical companies spend about 2 to $3 billion a year to unleash advertising campaigns, pro-industry propaganda, if you will, aimed at persuading the public they need more drugs. Yet many drugs are associated with serious injuries, something you're only told by mumbling and muttering voices speaking quickly and smoothly. Now, there's nothing new about corruption. Doctors are people, too. Where money can be made or power gained in a system with so much power, some people do take advantage. That explains why eight out of the nine doctors who wrote the 2004 cholesterol guidelines got money from statin manufacturers, and why the psychiatrist who recommended stimulants for ADHD got money from stimulant manufacturers. Prestigious medical journals let drug company consulting doctors write medical guidelines. Increasingly, medical literature is little more than drug propaganda because there are now so many ways to design a study to get the data you want to sell your drug. If one study shows it works and one shows it doesn't, the first study will be published, the second one not published. The FDA buries evidence of fraud, the CDC fudges the data. Even when research is legitimately done, it is unlikely to improve doctors' prescribing habits. When a group of researchers looked at Alzheimer's patients to determine what medicines they'd been taking before receiving this diagnosis, they found 30% of those patients were taking drugs that specifically could cause dementia. How did the doctors adapt to this information? Why, they added more Alzheimer meds to the mix. Studies done on antidepressants like Zoloft and Paxil found that a placebo worked as well or better than the drug for the desired results. Did this change prescribing habits? No, not really. Apparently, drug prescribing is as habit-forming as drugs. Does that seem healthy to you? It doesn't seem healthy to me at all. But then, I use naturopathic medicine to care for myself and my family. Chapter 9, Aegea Resurgent I've given you just a glimpse into the mess of modern medicine, but what has become of natural medicine? Is it still around? Is it viable? Does it work? 
Thanks to the internet, it is now possible to bypass the information stranglehold of a complicit media that depends on drug companies for revenue. As a result, studies that show the effectiveness of natural medicine and problems with drug medicine can be shared far and wide. So the promoters of sick care can no longer pretend to be unimpeachable, and they are no longer the only choice in town. Natural medicine, like medicine in general, continues to evolve with the passage of time and the acquisition of scientifically valid knowledge. The profession envisioned by Benedict Lust is thriving in the U.S. There are now seven accredited naturopathic programs across eight North American campuses that meet both federal and academic standards. Many campuses are expanding with new construction. There are natural medicine conferences somewhere in the world almost every week. Sixty-three percent of Americans use natural medicine to treat common problems, and the rate is even higher among healthcare workers than it is among the general population. Our doctors are teaching in other institutions and speaking to new audiences around the world. Core ideas of naturopathy have now been validated by scientific inquiry, including the central role of the digestive system in disease conditions, the value of fasting and rebooting the immune system, the medicinal value of certain foods and plants, the therapeutic strength of specific nutrients and diets, and much more. So while the sick care system is still firmly entrenched and promoted in every facet of life, here in the age of information, people are figuring it out. Heck, even the MDs are figuring it out. More and more, the conventional system is moving in naturopathy's direction and greening the MD profession as they come. This both weakens the hold of the drug industry on human health and points to the great value to be found in the natural approach to healthcare and healing. Chapter 10, Cultivate the Future. I want to reiterate that I hold no animus towards conventional medical professionals personally, nor do I mean any disrespect to any medical doctor in my community or yours. Some of us know parents and children who had some unfortunate condition and they took the drugs and had many procedures and they're still alive, so all credit to their doctors. And natural medicine is not for everyone. It requires personal responsibility and a willingness to work at health recovery and maintenance. It more often than not takes more time to reverse a disease process than the time it takes a pill to suppress your symptoms. The way I learned it, nothing is stronger than an idea whose time has come. As the failures of our corrupt sick care system become more commonly known, as the notion that it is scientifically sound is revealed to be nothing but a conceit, I believe that people will seek a healthier service to attend to their ailments and needs. Natural medicine is a wonderful resource for people wanting something more than to manage their health problems to death. And naturopathic doctors, when they practice true to the philosophy and therapeutic approach of our distinct system of health care, can transform families and communities, maybe even the nation itself, if given the chance. Naturopathic doctors are still the most highly trained experts in natural medicine that you'll find anywhere. 
Most people go into medicine, no matter what kind of medicine it is, to make a difference, not to control society. The future of healthcare won't be based on a competition for dominance. It will emerge from increasing cooperation, from a willingness to cross the Asclepius Aegean divide in the house of medicine, to become one family of physicians by whatever name, working in service to humanity. A real healthcare system cannot be about silos and turf as it is in the highly specialized and stratified sick care system. Instead, it must be about delivering care aimed at restoring and maintaining health at every stage of life so that each stage of life for those who desire a high quality of life can be healthful and enjoyable. I believe that the transformation of medicine can still happen and that health can be placed in the center of it instead of sickness. When enough people snap out of the medically induced trance to see what's being done to their health, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And that's where you come in. How you approach your health care plays a role in everyone's future, too. For just about every person seeking health and healing, I tell you there is a healthier choice than the drug and surgery intensive sick care we've all been conditioned to turn to for over 100 years of determined pro-monopoly propaganda. Isn't now the time for change? Time to respect nature's healing power? Time to choose real health care for yourself and your family? Time to reject the fear-promoting monopoly propaganda that regularly fills the airwaves and printed pages that's aimed at keeping you in line with their designs? Time to support professional expansion for naturopathic medicine? Time to promote political change so that the world's experts in natural medicine, naturopathic doctors who have graduated from accredited schools, can be allowed to serve the health needs of our fellow citizens? If you're just finding out about the history I've shared with you, please spread the word. If you already have a naturopathic doctor and you love your naturopathic doctor, please let your community know about it. With your help, naturopathic medicine will continue to thrive until the day when our sick system gets a healthy dose of actual change. My thanks to Roman Morikit of Sanctuary Studios for recording this program and for letting us use his wonderful music in our soundtrack. And thank you for your interest and your attention. Healthy communication is to bring about positive change. Man, that's amazing. <laughs>